Lord, I want to thank you so much for the privilege of being able to seek your face, to love you, to call out to you as pastor, but more importantly as a son that is that loves his dad, as as beloved that loves their lover, and is so thankful to be saved, so thankful to be to be to belong, to be adopted, and so thankful tonight to just be able to say that I'm yours. I recognize that you have so much to say in this text. So please, say it. And let us hear you. Let us know you. Let us get you tonight. May we have so much fun in your scripture. May we truly be just captivated and brought to this place, Lord, where we get it. We really, we get you. And we get your love for us. We get it. We understand it. So please now, have your way. I commit this time, Lord, and pray you would develop what you want to develop in this text. And Lord, may we see you in it as we should. Jesus, you said that there were those who were religious by politic, by culture, who searched the Scriptures thinking just knowing Scripture they would possess eternal life. And you said that they were the Scriptures, they were the ones that testified of you. We look at for you on every page. You come in the volume of this book. Every page. Every line by line. Every precept upon precept. I learn of you. And I want to know you better. So have your way now, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. The people have been oppressed. And they have cried out to the Lord, and historically they cry out to God, and God saves them. He sends a deliverer. He deploys an individual. In deploying that individual as a spokesman or a rep for God, they see the strength of God manifest in an individual who's handed over to him. We don't read that they are particularly qualified prior. But they're ridiculously good looking or strong. As a matter of fact, I mean, we always paint Samson, for instance, as a judge, as this gigantic guy. You know, he seems like he's like, Arnold is there to talk like, hello, I've come to destroy the Philistines. The problem is, is that they ask, what's the secret of your strength? And if he really looked like that, I don't know if they'd have to ask that. I kind of picture him more like Daniel. or And I mean, not to pick on Daniel. Daniel's awesome. Or Hugo. Imagine, and the only reason I say that is, I mean, they're brilliant and they're awesome in so many ways. They just, they're just not like somebody that's like would dwarf the rock if they stood next to him. You know, the rock, Dwayne Johnson, not a rock. But uh, I mean, you know, it's like there are certain guys, they just kind of, the, the one thing you kind of know about them is they're just bulbous. And... Uh, and the only reason I say that is, is that Samson really wasn't, just wasn't that, what appears. Uh, Gideon was totally scared, very afraid. I mean, these were not guys that you would have gone, clearly, that's your guy. And God has this hand, this, this heart, this, I should say, this soft spot for the underdog. He has this spot where he looks for the long shot. And that's the guy he loves to pick. Because when that guy does something amazing like Iceland in the, you know, in the cup, uh, in the European cup, it's like people are amazed because they're like, my goodness, there are more people in Croydon than there are, or in Barnet, than there are 
in the entire country. And somehow in it, it's like, I mean, the coach is like a part-time dentist. It isn't like the guy's in a full-time coach. He's got to go and he's like, you know, it's like at halftime, the guy's putting in a filling so we can get back out there in time to actually. I mean, it's just kind of fun to think that. And it's like the only reason I say that is, is like when something like that wins, everybody kind of stands up and goes, wow, what an amazing story. And it tells us in 1 Corinthians, not many of you were wise or strong or super awesome in essence when God called you. But he chose the weak things and the foolish things and the despised and the base and the things that appear not. Those things are not. And the reason he tends to pick this is so that no flesh would glory in him. So it wasn't like they'd go and go, well, clearly he picked you. That's just wise. You know, back those of you who remember those days of PE, physical education, we had a lot of team sports. Now, I grew up initially in Chicago before I moved to California. And, of course, our favorite team sport was a team sport called gang fighting. But, but the one that we kind of played that actually looked like a sport was a sport called Johnny Tackle. And Johnny Tackle was the one game that I actually learned how to play American football by. I mean, what happened is you had two lines, and everybody stood on one side, and a, except for one ridiculous, goofy kid who stood in the middle, and he yelled, Johnny Tackle. And then the herd stampeded toward you, and everyone that he tackled then stood in the middle with him until there was one or two idiots, like myself, that somehow had escaped all of that, that were left. And you know what happens? At that point, you pray for the bell, because you know. That if you if the bell doesn't ring and they get you there, every one of those people is going to jump on top of you at the same time. And that fear is a great motivator. But outside of Johnny Tackle, every other game was a game where they lined everyone else up on a fence, which, of course, in Chicago was fairly common. Uh, you know, it was prerequisite for a lot of other things that would happen. And then whatever, two guys would stand up there and then they would start picking. You know, and they're like, okay, we're going to play this sport. Of course, I pick Adam. Well, okay, who about you? Oh, you pick, you know, Bruno, or you pick Daniel, or Hugo, or whatever. You pick whoever. I'll take Marcia. Okay, well, then, you know, I'm Maureen. Oh, you take Sha- I'll take Shantae. Well, you take- and you kind of get this thing. And, you know, in the end of it all, there's like three or four guys left standing at the wall. And they're like, okay, all right, you, okay, I'll take that one guy if you have these two. And you never want to be one of those guys, you know. Now, I've learned from the very beginning, I guess that's the part of me that thinks, that's not a lot of me, but this part, realized that the only person that never has to worry about that was the coach, was the captain. So I always just volunteered. I was the guy picking, so you never knew where I'd wind up. I always figured I'd be, I don't know, anyways. But I remember those sports because you always watched fear. Certain people that were so confident well, duh, obviously you're a fool not to pick me. And then there was those people at the end. If you pick certain people, though, somewhere even in the middle, they were like, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. But you can see when God picks his team, he looks out and he goes, all right, everybody else pick first. And they pick all of their people and he goes, I'll take the rest. As if he sat with them and said, you tell me who you don't want, and I'll take them. Give me the weak. Give me the needy. Give me the despised. Give me the foolish, the embarrassing. Give me the ones that you look at and go, I see no potential in you at all. God says, those are the ones Because when I win with this team, 
you'll know God's here. The problem is if we really think we're doing God a favor by him picking us. Well, up to this point, that's been the case. The people would cry out and God would raise up one of those last picked. But now things have changed. Israel has gotten comfortable in the promised land and in getting comfortable in the promised land. They started to look around and they started to realize that they did things really differently from the rest of the world. I mean, understand the things that they did differently. One is, for instance, they didn't kill all of their firstborn children like everyone else did when they gave up their their firstborn to their gods of pleasure. For me, that'd be Shantae. Aren't you thankful? You know? I mean, and it would be, and it's not just kill them. Like Molech was an iron or a brass idol that had a, it sort of, to be honest, built a lot like Buddha in that sense. And they'd light a fire until it was red. And then they would take the child and throw the child in the arms of this molten idol. And it was seared alive in front of them. So they could go and commit more pleasure at the expense of their children. Here's the problem. If you keep killing off, if you kill off your firstborn, then the next one is now your firstborn. Every child is subject if you're not careful. Well, that's something we don't do like the rest of the world is we don't kill our children. We don't want to see them killed. The rest of the world out there had no sense of commitment The Canaanites, the Moabites, the Edomites, who, by the way, were still of Jewish blood in essence, because they were still, I should say this, they were of Abrahamic blood. Sex was licentious, it was open, and there was no commitment needed. It was sex for the sake of pleasure. And people were, in essence, objects more than they were Personalities. Persons. And there was nothing wrong with that. Most of those cultures had prostitutes for hire that were directly connected with their temples. So they actually considered prostitution is part of their acts of worship. And we look around and here we are going, oh, I have to marry one person, stay committed to them. Oh boy, and I can't even have sex with them until we're married. Wow, we're so different from the rest of the world. The rest of the world was getting wasted. Alcohol, by the way, you're probably familiar with the fact that even beer goes all the way back to Egypt. I can show you hieroglyphics of people barfing from drinking too much beer. With script underneath that says, where can I go to find another drink? Oh, they tagged back then too. They tagged their walls. And the Yemenites had no problem getting wasted. The Canaanites were known for it. And we look around and we're like, wow, everyone else seems to be so mind blown. And then there's us. We're not supposed to do any of that stuff. And then there was violence. Guys would fight for sport. And we're looking around and we're going, dang it, 
we really are dorks. We really are nerds. Look at how the rest of the world laughs at us. We're goody goodies. Like that's a bad thing. I, the last time I heard good was a good term. We're so tired of being like every, not like everyone else, being the butt of everyone's joke. During this time, Samuel, the last judge, first prophet, is ruling. And ultimately, Samuel has a couple sons, and his sons are just as rotten as the household he came from, where the priest of the day, Eli, had two sons, Serpent Mouth and Puncher over their names. And the people are like, we're, okay, we're tired of this. We get you, you're a decent guy, we like you. But there's no way we want your kids to rule us. But it wasn't just that. That alone, we, I would understand. Because who would want those guys? They're, they're taking bribes. They can't be trusted. And what we'll see tonight is, listen, politics are not a reflection of the general mass. According to Scripture, we're going to see here, is politics are going to be a general reflection of the church. We have a problem with what we see in politics. It starts actually at the church, not just with people. We'll see that here. And they say, you know what we want? I mean, among all the other things that we see, every other place around us we've noticed really has all of these really tangible things. I mean, what do all those things have in common? The sex and the drugs. They're tangible. I can feel that. And you know what? They have a tangible king. Someone that they can see that represents them. And we can't just say, God, raise up another deliverer at this moment. Because let's face it, when God raises up a deliverer, it's not somebody you want to put on a coin. Even Paul in the New Testament, people would say his, his letters are weighty, but he is so unimpressive in person. I mean, imagine that would be like you slept out all night to get tickets at the roundhouse to see Paul. He shows up and you're like, that's him? I expected so much more. Jesus, according to the book of Isaiah, prophesying 700 years before and said he had no, listen, he had no stately form or majesty that we would be attracted to him. That means not only was he not good looking, he was also not buff, which takes that whole California surfer Jesus that many of us would buy posters of and throws it out the window. He just doesn't have that. I just think he tended to look, to be honest, he probably looked a lot more like a terrorist today than he would have actually a surfer. Jesus was not somebody that everyone looked at and went, wow, is he cute. I imagine a lot of people looked and went, wow, this is the guy everyone's talking about? This is it? So if we want somebody to look like the rest of the countries, everyone else around us, well, what would that be? We need someone good looking. We need somebody big. We need someone that the rest of the world is going to take a look at and go, well, if that's what their country is about, yeah, don't mess with them. Give us a king like everyone else. Samuel's really hurt. And God's like, Sammy, loose paraphrase, they haven't abandoned you. They haven't forsaken you. They've forsaken me. I'm their king, not you. They're tired of me being king because they want to be like everyone else. So that's what they want. You better tell them what that means. 
It's going to cost them dearly. But listen, if this is what they really want, we'll give them a king like the rest of the nations. Now, they don't see the fact that what God's going to give them isn't a perfectly godly king, but rather a perfectly worldly example. Here's the mercy of God. God knows who's going to replace him. And he knows there's a guy that's going to replace him that we'll learn a lot about God from. But please hear me in this. They've picked the man, and he's a head and shoulders taller than anyone else. He's really good looking. He is a great example of a worldly king. Church, I think the church needs to make a Brexit. Not from the European Union, but from the dictations of British society. We need to stop trying to look like the rest of the world to blend in and start looking like the Christians God called us to be. The country here is going to give us a great example of what it's going to happen. We're going to go through an identity crisis. Who are we now? Well, we're no longer just everyone's best friend and, you know, sort of part of the anchor of or part of the, you know, sort of one of the mainstays within the European Union. And we were considered that the pound was strong and we, of course, were very influential. I mean, and so we kind of pulled out of that situation. And now we're like, who in the world are we now before we reintroduce ourselves to the rest of the world again? We should probably figure out who we are before that. And it's like the church has done, you know, the church really needs to kind of pull out of society for a moment and go, hey, well, who in the world are we? And we have to let Christ define us. So when we go back to society, we have a mission and we're not just basically trying to be everyone else. But Samuel's still hurt. The king has been picked. And now that everyone recognizes that he's the king, forgive me for the lengthy introduction, but that takes us into our text. But there is one very important thing to note as we get into our text now that when this king was finally recognized, when he recognized his calling, he had been anointed and he said these special events are going to take place. I mean, they're going to tell you that the donkeys you were looking for had been found. They're going to give you loaves of bread. A guy's going to be carrying three goats. Just look for a guy like that. That's a strange occurrence, you know. And you're going to see the bread and wine that's going to be with that. And then after that, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be a different guy. You'll clearly be a different guy at that point. But then he tries to go and he says, and then all of that stuff happens. I want you to go to Gilgal, the place of consecration, and wait for me seven days. And then we're going to go and we're going to do two offerings. The burnt offering to the Lord total sacrifice, and then the peace offering to celebrate that you're right with God over this. But he doesn't do that. But please understand, Samuel had made give clear instructions, go down to Gilgal, wait seven days, and then offer these two offerings. So what you have now, of course, is a king with a fantastic calling, but no consecration. His heart is not set apart to the Lord, but his life is set apart to the people for purpose, to be their king. And now Samuel is going to address the people over it. And you can tell he's hurt. Read it with me. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now, here's the king, walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed, And look, my sons are with you. Now, of course, those sons were punks. 
I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Could you imagine saying that you've been in the limelight? It's like they've had a reality television show about you since you were actually fresh out of nappies. Because that was when he was dropped off. And he has been public eye ever since. Could you imagine having that much scrutiny? And here's what he says in verse 3. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? And whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? And from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I'll restore it to you. Now what he's saying is, why, what have I done to deserve this? This whole wanting a king thing. And you can see Samuel is still really hurt. Even though it's not Samuel, they're refusing. And they said, you've not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. And they said to him, well, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. Notice he doesn't say that about his kids. And the people say he's witness. And Samuel said to the people that, and he starts to give what is called a perishah. Perishah means a declaration. And it's, in essence, a recounting of the history of Israel. And it's uh, often with a theme. Moses did it in Deuteronomy. It's basically what Deuteronomy is. Joshua does it in Joshua 24 when he says at the end of it all, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. And now Samuel does it here. And he says this in verse 6. It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron who brought up your fathers from the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. Notice the whole point is what God's doing. When Jacob had gone out of Egypt, your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Chazor, into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of Moab, and they fought against them. You know what the people did? Like last time, they cried out to the Lord and, and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now deliver us from the hand, but now deliver us from the hand of our enemies and we'll serve you. Remember, they're speaking about God. So the Lord sent Yerubbaal, that's Gideon, Badan, most believe that's Barach, Yipsa. And Samuel, which, by the way, these guys were judges, and Samuel being the last of them, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt safely. Now stop. Here's God's history. God loves you. He called you out. And every time you turned your back on God, you found yourself in a rough spot. But in that rough spot, you cried out to God, and God took a human being, an ordinary human being, and he deployed him to rescue you. What made that man special was the anointing that was upon him by God, the calling that was upon him by God. He was no way more special than any other human being, except in this sense that he had a great calling in his life, which God sent him he deployed him like a king would to deliver his people. Here's been your history. You have a history of turning your back on God. Then your life really stinks. And you cry out to God and God delivers you by sending a physical deliverer. The deliverer, the physical deliverer could never have delivered 
had it not been that the king, God, had deployed him. And therefore, the authority of that God came with him. All the deliverer was, was a vehicle that brought God's deliverance. You remove God from the equation, and what you have is an empty vehicle. Because this has been God's history with you. He did that with Moses and Aaron, when you cried out to him. He did that with the judges when you finally made it into the promised land. Every time your life stunk, you didn't cry out to a guy. You cried out to God. And God then took care of it. There is never a time where when you were in trouble, you cried out to him and he didn't take care of you. But something has changed now. Verse 12. When you saw Nechash, the king of the Ammonites, remember that's the right eyeball guy? And he came against you. You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When God, the Lord your God, was the king, your king. Now, therefore, here's a king whom you've chosen, whom you desire. Now, take note, the Lord has set a king over you. Now, notice, the point is, he's going, now, look at All the things that God was, you're going to expect from this guy, and you're not going to get it. But the Lord can use a human being to change another human being's life. The Lord can use a single human being to transform a nation. The Lord can use a single human being to transform a nation. Why not you? To be honest, any reason you want to give me that you think is legitimate makes you an underdog and only further qualifies you. You don't speak the language well? Moses tried that. You're too young. Jeremiah tried that. You've had a filthy tongue. Isaiah tried that. So what's your excuse? Why not you? Why not me? Wouldn't it be awesome? What we're going to see is that Saul will not represent that the heart of a guy that should be like that, but we will meet his son. Next week, we'll see how to transform a nation, how to transform the world through one person. Ooh. Samuel takes a look and he says, Listen, God knows how to send a person to tend to your needs. He knows how to do that. But you instead have taken what you should be doing by sending out to God for this and you want to turn it into something for a man. But here's the good news in your nonsense. And let's face it, every one of us are easily addicted to the tangible. We need to touch and hear and see and smell. We really, really want it. And we would love so much more if God could just physically speak to us all the time and if we could just feel God and see God all the time. But, you know, if if it was like a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, wouldn't that be awesome? Here's the problem. If God were simply that clear all the time, I think it would be even more obvious how how disobedient our hearts really are. But here's the great news, beloved. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people. For his great namesake, because, please hear this with your heart, because it pleased the Lord to make you his people. God did not do it because he was contractually obligated. 
God did not do it because he felt like he had to so that it would make him look good. It really pleases God to make you his. It really pleases God to make you his. And because of that, he has no interest in bailing on you now, even when you're still in your own heart bailing from him. Even when you're turning from what belongs to him and handing it to someone else, God still has no interest in bailing on you. Moreover, verse 23, one of my life verses when I think of people like our fellowship. Moreover, as for me, far be it that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and right way. It's quite simple. Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider the great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. He says, look it. Let me just challenge you with three things. One, revere God. Revere means to honor him as the bigger, as the biggest. El Shaddai means God Almighty. And there is no contender nor crisis that can compare Because I revere God, there's our word for fear, revere, yare. I know he's bigger and I can rest with that. Second, not only revere, but serve to respect him. Not only revere God, but respect God, who is the one I should bow to and serve. No man, just God and whoever he establishes. And then third, remember God. Remember that he is the one who's done all of this. All of these great deliverances came not through a man first, but foremost from God. So now we start to see this comparison in chapter 13. I remind you, Saul was a man with a great calling, but no consecration in his heart. And it's sooner or later that will surface. Hey, if you have a heart for God, even if you're brand new and you feel like you're kind of a fledgling at the moment, or even if you feel like, you know, I'm just still figuring all of this out, but your heart is right. The good news is God knows the heart and he works with the heart in all of this. And it will manifest. When I first met my wife, she was established. She knew scripture. She had gone to a church and she got what we would call grounded. You know, that's where you get rooted in the word. You know what healthy fellowship is. You learn, you're praying. You're doing, you're, you have a good quiet time. You're establishing how to, to develop a healthy, proper relationship with God. And she was walking solidly. She knew who he was. I was really fresh out of the world, still burping my mother's milk spiritually. I was like really a new thing. And I was crass. I had a foul mouth and I was sarcastic. I was everything that would embarrass a good Christian. Now, for some of you, that might encourage you. For some of you are like, really? Hopefully you think so. Anyways, I mean, I still embarrass people. I understand that. I'm American. But anyways, and I understand I was worse. I was worse. And I really honestly believed my wife now hated me because I irritated her so much by my worldliness. I knew no scripture, but I sure knew a lot of other things. I knew a lot of other information that was totally unbeneficial. And I could sound really smart. I could talk philosophy until it came out my nose and felt like it did often. I could rattle off things that, so, that were so confusing, I don't think I understood them after a while. But in the end, one thing she knew 
was that I had a heart for God and I was hungry for Him. And she just knew if I could be planted in the right place. As it says in Psalm 92, that He was planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of our God. She just knew if I could be planted in the right place, I'd, be, I'd just take off. I would launch. By God's grace, He brought us to a Calvary Chapel where that could happen. A heart that belongs to Him will manifest. Even if in the beginning it seems like the shell is still pretty mucked up. But a heart that isn't consecrated can learn all of the religious culture at once. Sooner or later, the heart's going to manifest. And we start to see that now in chapter 13 with Saul. When Saul was initially there for that initial battle at Yabish Gilead, there were 330,000 soldiers. Remember that. Look at verse 1, chapter 13. So Saul reigned a year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 men were with Saul in Michmash, in the mountains of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gebeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away. Every man to his tent. Now, look at verses 1 and 2 for a moment. How many men at this moment are deployed in his army? Three thousand guys. Do you remember how many there were at the last battle? Three hundred and thirty thousand guys. That means of the three hundred and thirty thousand guys, three thousand are still left. Three hundred and twenty seven thousand he sent home. What is he doing with the three thousand? Two thousand of them guard Saul. One thousand of them guard his son. The first thing I start to look at is how Saul starts to live to protect himself. We're going to see this to become a common theme with the guy. And it is a common theme with anyone whose heart is not consecrated to God. They spend all their time saving face and protecting themselves. They'll spend so much time with that they couldn't possibly share with anyone. They couldn't possibly shine Christ in any way because they're too afraid of what other people might think. Now, let me ask you this. This is a simple question, but it's all new. So I recognize that. But we're all in the same boat here. This is probably fresh text for most of you. Verse 2, where was Saul now stationing with his 2,000 men? Where was it? What's the place called? Try it one. Michmash. Try that. Michmash. Come on, give it, give it to me good and strong, you guys. Michmash. Thank you. One more time. Michmash. Remember that. Remember that. So let me ask you, where was Saul with his 2,000 guys? Thank you. Mechmash. That's fun, isn't it? All right. Now, on the other hand, Jonathan was in a place called Gebeah. Try that. Gebeah. Okay, so let me ask you this. Where was Saul? Excellent. Where was his son, Jonathan? Gebeah. Beautiful. Mechmash, by the way, it's, its first mention in Scripture means hidden. Does that tell you something? Saul, the king, took 2,000 of his soldiers, another 1,000 to watch his kid, sent the rest of them home, and he went to a place called Hidden. Does that tell you something about the king? No. Send everyone else away. Now, notice we get an idea of what took place. Now, look at verse 1. Doesn't verse 1 look kind of funny? Saul reigned a year, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, he did this? Well, what happened in the first year? Nothing. That's the whole point. He's like, Saul reigned a year. Nothing really happened. 
And to be honest, it was without incident. There was no movement. There was no progress. It was a very uneventful year. Now, the only time when uneventful is good is when you have a guy that's either a sound man or a bus driver. When a bus driver or a pilot or a sound man, nothing eventful happens, that means nothing bad happened. But for a king that's supposed to take the people forward, nothing good's happening either. He's like, when he reigned a year, nothing really happened. By the second year, Saul is now shacked up in a hideaway with 2,000 guys protecting him. Doesn't sound like the guy's taking him forward at all. Saul has become latent. He has become settled, and he's become sedentary. The guy is not going anywhere. And that tells you something already. One of the first things that will start to manifest in a heart that really hasn't, isn't handed over to the Lord is the absence of a desire to really grow in him. Hey, just let me go to heaven, but let me live the rest of my life like, the, like I did before. Why should it have to change? And you realize in that, that that's where Saul is starting to demonstrate. But Jonathan is not like that. And Jonathan, can I just say, in all honesty, Jonathan is one of my favorite people in all of Scripture. I mean, he's like one of the unsung heroes. You know, like there are those teams, back when the Bulls were winning all of the NBA championships, everyone thought of Jordan because Jordan was amazing. But there were other guys like Pippen and Grant. Those, that may mean nothing to you probably. But there were other guys on the team that without them, Jordan would not have won those because it wasn't Jordan that won. It was the Bulls that won. And there are stars, no doubt. But what's the star of the Iceland team? And we can start talking about other teams where you can kind of pick out guys specifically and go, okay, well, there's an amazing guy here. But what's really making some teams win really is that there's an amazing team where there's a lot of players that really work as a team. This guy, Jonathan, if I were the coach and I was picking guys, most people don't know him well enough to pick him. I would want him right away because understand, Jonathan is Saul's son. And Saul now, he's wealthy now because he's king. He's got the best of everyone's everything, but he's not doing anything with it. He's not building anything. He's not going anywhere at this moment. He's not taking on any of the battles. Understand there's a lot of enemies around. What we're going to find in a moment is Israel isn't even allowed to own a sword. The Philistines have got to a point now where they're like, you can't even have a weapon. Because the Philistines know that they turn those weapons on them. Israel at this point is is really the picked on kid at the school. Israel is the bullied kid. And there's a king that's doing nothing about it. But he is a son. And his son is sick of it. His son, raised in this environment. His son, watching nothing happen around him, can't handle it. Oh, I pray that would be us that that spirit would be upon us when we look and go, well, the church has had their little meetings. We eat our pie. We go home. And we don't want anything to do with affecting the rest of the world. At best, we could have a craft sale. Maybe we could have a rummage sale, a car boot sale, and maybe make a couple pounds so we can pay off the, the... some, you know, the roof payment or something. But in the end of it all, who's going out to actually go and take down the gates of hell and start, and start taking out the prisoners? And we go, I'm so tired of the church doing nothing. And that's where Saul is. But Jonathan, in verse 2, or verse 3, attacked the garrison. Now understand, the garrison is a 
fortified stronghold of the Philistines that were, by the way, the bully to the bullied Israel. They went, this, it's like a kid went that was part of the picked on crew and he went to the hangout of the bullies and he took them on. That kid's got some chutzpah. That kid's got some guts. And I tell you, man, everything about him just says, God, put that spirit in me. So it says, Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was in Gibeah. By the way, that is Benjamite territory, which, by the way, Jonathan belongs to that tribe, according to Joshua 21. And it says, and the Philistines heard it. Saul blew the, tum- the trumpet throughout the land of Israel. And he said, let all the Hebrews hear. Now, who said, let all the Hebrews hear? Who said that? Saul did. Why is that important? Notice it says, now all Israel heard that Saul had attacked the Philistine of the garrisons. Wait a minute. Did Saul attack the Philistine's garrison? No. Jonathan did. And can I say, here is another thing I start to see when you see an unset apart, an unconsecrated heart manifest, is how the credit tends to move to a person who really didn't have anything to do with it. Check me out. Look at how I did it. But here's the problem. Once you attack the Philistines, you know what's going to happen. They're going to come out after you. Are you ready for that? And that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines. We know that that's what's going to happen. Because the moment someone is actually willing to challenge those standards and stop becoming friends with standards that the Bible disagrees with, they go, well, we don't want to offend people, even though the Bible says opposite. So, you know, we'll do, we'll offend Jesus instead because he'll have to forgive us. Can you imagine? One guy's like, no, I am so fed up with this. There is no way this is going to happen. I'm going to tell it like it is. I'm going to tell him the truth. I'm going to go after this stronghold, and I'm going to go after it. Now, what they're going to know then is we're declaring war against it. They're going to see this as an act of war. And you know what? You can see Jonathan going, so? If it is, so be it. I'm tired of being picked on over this. So, it says, Israel had become an abomination, and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Does that sound familiar? The place where Saul was supposed to have been consecrated. This is the second time he's been there, by the way. Neither of them were when Samuel said, go there to be consecrated. The last time was when they actually declared him king. The Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. I don't know if you can imagine. Consider a chariot a tank. 30,000 tanks. 6,000 horsemen. And people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. An uncountable army. And they came and encamped where? Look at verse 5. Where did they encamp? Wait a minute. Where? Does that sound familiar? Who was supposed to be in Michmash? Who was there? Saul and his 2,000. Do you realize Saul and his inactivity has even given up the ground that he was at? When we don't move forward, we actually don't see that we're giving up land. The place where Saul was is now Philistine territory all of a sudden. And that is where the camp of the army is. East of Beth-Avon, which, by the way, Beth-Avon means the house of vanity. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, because the people were freaking out, they were distressed. By the way, you might say that stress, distress today is just way stressed. Um, then the people hid their, in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. 
And some of the Hebrews even crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Did you notice now that when the people start focusing on the enemy, there's two places they hide. The first is the world. Look at all the places. Thickets, caves, rocks, holes, and pits. What do they all have in common? They're all in the earth. And you find that when people start focusing on the enemy and they see a battle and they feel like it's not worth it, they hide in the world. The second is what is Gad and Gilead for the nation Israel? Well, that was where they came from. That's where they had to cross over to get into Israel. That's where they were before they entered the promised land. It was their past. And can I say, when challenges hit and you know that the enemy has come up against you, the easiest thing to do is to just hide out in the world or to go back to the things of your past. That's what the enemy would want. But guess who's not doing that? Jonathan. By the way, do you know what Jonathan means? Jonathan is, this, is the male version, if you will, of the mother of Samuel. Do you remember what Samuel's mother's name was? Hannah, Hannah, Johanna, John. So you have John, Joanna, Johanna, Hannah are all the root word, and Hannah means grace. This kid whose name is Grace is tired of being picked on by the enemy. And the army that should be fighting with him is hiding in the world, hiding, running back to their past. And what we're going to find in a moment, or next week, is hiding even in the Philistine camp, even in the enemy camp. That's where they are. It says then, seven days now, verse 8, and he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. Here's the problem. We do not read that Samuel ever told Saul here to wait seven days for him. Do you know when Samuel told Saul to wait seven days for him? At the beginning. Do you remember that? When he said, go and consecrate, wait seven days and I'll show up. Now, maybe Samuel did. We don't know. But I find this really interesting because Samuel's not showing up in those seven days like he would have before. But the first time Samuel was, Saul was supposed to go there and wait seven days, now he's doing this whole thing. And in 1 Samuel 10, when Saul was first told this, he never did it. Now it's a little late. It's amazing how when God tells you, you need to get your heart right and this is what it needs to look like, and then you don't do it, and then a hard time hits, and now you're trying to figure out how to make it happen in retrospect. It's like trying to, it's like, look at if you don't pay your credit card bill, three months later or six months later, you decide, oh, wow, I should probably go pay that. You can't just pay your original amount. Because by this point, it's accrued interest. You can't just go, I I just didn't feel like doing so. Now I really feel like doing it. Let's just pay this amount. Because obviously, there's other things that have happened since. But here's our challenge. Samuel is waiting for, for, Saul is waiting for Samuel. And he's not coming. Not yet. But he is waiting. And can I say, the greatest challenge to your faith will often be time. 
Because it's one thing to feel like you can be a hero in your faith in a quick of a moment. But it is another thing altogether to be that when it hits hard. And you're waiting. And you're waiting. And you're waiting. Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise. 25. Where were you 25 years ago? Some of you were in nappies. Some of you weren't even an uh-oh in, their, in your parents' eyes. But imagine God gave you a promise 25. Those of you who are old enough to appreciate 25 years. Some of us who have become more valuable at our vintage. And uh, think about what God would have done 25 years ago. 1991. 1991. I'm giving you a promise. And in that promise, you've waited till now to get it. Would you even remember the promise? What God promised his deliverer in the book of Psalms, that was a thousand years before Jesus came. And there was a promise of his soon return. We don't know how long it's going to be, but we know that if God makes a promise, he keeps it. And Saul is waiting, and finally he's tired of waiting, and he takes into his hands that which he is not permitted to do. Saul cannot make these offerings himself because these offerings are for an ordained person to do, someone God has set to do. The same way that no one else was called to be king at this moment because Saul was called to be king, only a prophet or a priest was to be able to handle these sacrifices. And these were the sacrifices Samuel was to do back at the beginning of Saul's ministry. But Saul wasn't going for it. And now Saul takes it. And here's what happens. Hear me on this. When we get caught in a religious system, but our hearts really don't belong to God, we will take upon ourselves the responsibility to do things that only God can do. And God hasn't ordained for us to do. And that's the sacrifice. So we'll build rules on how we make right with God instead of pleading the blood of Jesus. And we'll create ways and we tell God, now we really mean it. And we're going to pray more fervently. We're going to do all these things as if we're going to pay God back. Instead of let his sacrifice be enough. That he did for us. But Saul's one of those people, and you probably have a friend like this, you might be that, that... You know, there's some people, it seems like they could do anything and they never get caught. You, on the other hand, maybe you start doing something and you get busted before you're even done doing it. Well, that's where Saul is. Verse 10, it says, Now what happened? As soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came, Saul went out to meet him to greet him. And Saul said, What have you done? Saul said, Well, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, well, then I said the Philistines will come down now on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled, and I offered a burnt offering. Did you notice that in all of this, he blamed everyone but himself? He's like, by the way, the people were scattering, and you, you're late, and the Philistines were coming. And so, therefore, I forced myself to do this. I'm, and hear this, hear this, I'm a victim. There's the, pl- there's the card to play. 
That's a pretty popular card today, isn't it? You don't understand. Okay, so we killed a bunch of people, but you don't understand. I'm a victim. Have you done something wrong? No, it's not wrong because I'm a victim. You don't understand. You're right, I don't understand. Even if you are, it's still wrong. Wrong is wrong regardless. And there's the problem. And Saul, of course, because he isn't manning up for it, God's going to respond. Now, by the way, it's interesting because Samuel's response to Saul is not like we would have in a lot of cases today with counselors. A lot of counselors today would be like, oh my goodness, that must have been a really rough experience for you. Wow, tell me about it. Wow, it must have hurt to feel these people leave and it must have been, wow, you're right. It's amazing you could breathe. You know what Samuel does? He says, you acted like a complete idiot. That's what Samuel says. Look at it. Samuel, verse 13. He said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord, your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Understand what he's saying. He's going, look, you can blame everyone that you want to, but in the end of it all, it's still simply disobedience. And you are the one who disobeyed. Stop blaming somebody else for it. Stop playing the victim card. Be responsible with your disobedience. Here's the scary part, is that God wants to forgive us if we would just willingly confess. 1 John 1, 8-10 tells us there's three things we can do with sin. We could say that it isn't sin, we could pretend like we've never sinned, or we could confess it. In one case, we lie to ourselves. In one case, we call God a liar. And in the third case, it says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which of those three do we want to do? Do we really think it's smarter to play a victim card when we could actually just have it removed and washed clean? Why would we want to do that? Why would we want to somehow feel like we, we've reasoned our way out of it instead of actually got it dealt with forever and got it taken off of us? And Samuel says, look it, regardless of who you want to blame, and clearly the people did leave, and clearly Samuel was late, but that is not excuse enough for Saul to disobey. Now that, would, by the way, would be a rough one to sell in the world around us if we want to be like the rest of the world. But disobedience is still disobedience. He says, you know what's going to happen? Your disobedience has lost your legacy. You know the crazy part? You know who his legacy is? It's Jonathan. And anything Jonathan does from this point on is actually amazing if you think about it. Because to be honest, Jonathan knows he won't be king. But that doesn't stop him from still wanting to do the Lord's will. And here's our introduction. Listen. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Please hear me. Obviously, we know in retrospect, as we read this, who he's speaking of. He's speaking of Saul's replacement, who, by the way, will be, by the time he's even called, a teenager named David. He is older, I'm sorry, he is younger than every person in this room. But understand what God said qualified him. God did not say he was bigger, cuter, stronger, better at war. 
understand what he said, and please hear me on this. What he said was what qualifies him is not what he's attained, not what he's achieved, not what's ascribed to him, but what he's after. Please hear me. I have found someone who's really after my heart. Not my stuff. Not my blessings. Not my power. Not my glory. Not my peace. What he really wants is my heart. Oh, beloved, this is our first introduction into David. And what God says is, what he's really after is my heart. That's not what you're after, Saul. That's clearly not what you're after. Now listen, please hear me, and I'm almost done, but I've got to do this. In this room at this moment, I see two married couples. I mean, to all of the other people, I see two married couples. Guys, if you're after your wife's heart, what does that look like? Might I suggest two things? One, you would take what is important to them and make it important to you. Second, you would take what they hate and learn to hate it. You would take what they find vile and not like it. And the reason I say that is, if somewhere in it, that's what we're going to kind of find in the heart of this kid. And the thing I love about David, among all of the other things we can find in this, is that he's a songwriter. At the end of his life, he will not call himself the greatest king in Israel. I mean, there were two, and that would have been easy. Uh, 50-50, and he was certainly better than Saul. Uh, He would not call himself the giant slayer. He would not call himself the greatest warrior. David would end his life and call himself the sweet psalmist of Israel. At the end of his life, he says, you know what I was more than anything? I was just like a songwriter. It's all really. I mean, do you realize he writes 71, and there are at least 71 of the psalms of the 150 ascribed to him. Five of them will be contemplations. Two will be prayers. Six will be called michtams. Great word, by the way. It actually means like to tattoo. It's like things that have made a tattoo on his soul. One meditation. He is referred to 1,118 times in 971 verses in 28 books. It's called as a teen. He'll reign between the ages of 30 and 70. The term son of David will be used seven times. For David's sake will be used five. And then five different victories, we'll see, are given because of David's sake. He has eight wives, 19 sons, and at least one daughter. He has seven brothers and two sisters, according to 1 Chronicles 2. It is his covenant from which goes and takes us all the way into Jesus. And God tells us in 2 Samuel 7, 8, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. David will emerge here and in verse 15, or chapter 15. By 16, he'll be anointed, and by 17, he'll be taken on Goliath. And then from that on, from that on, the rest of this book will be him running for his life. He'll spend half of his life until he becomes king, running for it. Then he'll rise to the throne in 2 Samuel. 
And then it'll fall hard by chapter 11. And he'll receive the fallout from it and die there in his restoration. The good news. He's very human, very full of crazy passions. But God says in the midst of all those things, he doesn't say I found a guy that was perfect. He didn't say that I was a, I found a guy that's memorized all my verses. He doesn't say I found a guy that's perfectly at church all the time. I mean, it would be great to have those things. He goes, but I'll tell you what the most important thing is. I found a guy that's after my heart. Not after my stuff, not after my glory, not after my power, but after my heart. Oh, that God would make me such a guy. That I would be somebody that was like, God, if you could give me anything, can I have your heart? Would I even ask that? Or do I know me so bad, or so well, should I say, that I'd be really afraid, God, don't give me your heart because I would just ruin it anyways. I'd break it. I want to say, I mean, 26 years ago, I stood at the altar and I told a woman to give me her heart. And I knew that I was human. I'm like, God, please, please, let me have your heart. Not the nations, not fame, not importance. Can I just be with you? And you know, you learn a lot about a songwriter from his songs. I don't care what anyone says. Anybody that says that my ministry is elsewhere, but the songs that I write, that's just business. Look at a song that you write really bears your soul much more naked than anything else you do. And I'm going to quickly read to you three of David's songs. Imagine while Saul is trying to save face, David is writing these songs. I remind you, as God said, from following the sheep. I mean, let's face it. He's the youngest, by the way, of eight brothers, uh, the youngest of eight boys. And, and understand, following the sheep is the last place you want to be. In front of the sheep, a little better. And following the sheep, you better be careful where you step. He was the lowest kid in the, on the branch. But imagine what it would be like while Saul, a grown man, is saving face here, trying to command an army and become the public figure to everyone else. This is the heart that God sees. Saul made is our first. And I'll read it to you, God willing, it'll be behind us as well for you to see. Psalm 8 says this, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord. Not just Lord or your Lord, but our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who has set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have made, what is, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him. I mean, you made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. I mean, you've made, him, you've, made him, you've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the air, fish of the sea that pass through the pass of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And you see this kid laying in the thousand star hotel. You know what that is? That's out in an open field at night, laying there. With his head sort of in his hands, laying on his back and staring at the sky, and he goes, Wow. When I consider the work of your fingers, 
the sun and the moon and the stars. Man, I feel so small. Who am I? Look at this huge space. Who am I? That you'd know my name. Who am I? And God says, now that's somebody that's after my heart. Second Psalm, Psalm 23. David is a shepherd. Even in what he does, he compares it. I wonder what that would be like for those of you who are out in the workforce every day. If you're like, the Lord is my programmer. The Lord is my retailer. The Lord is, how would it work? What parts do you see in your work that remind you, the Lord is my solicitor? What parts would you see and you'd go, this reminds me of Jesus. Because it seems to me, in this case, of course, God, the Father, and, and just wonder what it would be like to see everything through that lens. Because it seems like David did. Many of you are familiar with Psalm 23. A Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd. I, I shall not want. I have nothing to worry about. I have nothing to want if he's really my shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yeah, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. If you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David's like, you know what I really want? is to just live with you, God, forever. And God's like, that's what I'm looking for. Last Psalm, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the earth shows his firmament or his handiwork. I'm sorry. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout the whole of the earth and their words to the end of the world. And in them he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run his race. It's rising us from one end of heaven to the other. Convert, and he says the circuit is to the other end. There's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than they are than, to, than gold. Yeah, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them there is great reward. And who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. And I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. David says, please keep me from presumptuous sins. I mean, where I would stupidly, foolishly walk into something that would clearly be sin, but I'm so stupid that I can't see it. Don't even let me pretend to be stupid and walk into this. Please. Would everything that comes out of my mouth, would everything that I ponder in my heart, please you, please, please. 
Can everything about me make you smile? No wonder why God says, no, that's my boy. And here's a grown man and God says, I'm handing you your P45. Because, really the truth be told, I found a better kid than you. I found a kid that's better. Our last few verses and we'll close this up in prayer. Samuel arose and went from Gilgal to Gebeah of Benjamin. Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. So he went from 330,000 to 3,000 to 600. Sounds a lot like Gideon, who, by the way, the only other time we read, in essence, that there was an innumerable army up to this point. And it was Gideon who, by the way, took on an innumerable army with 300 men. This is twice as many. Saul, Jonathan, his son, and the people present with them returned in Gebeah of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash, and you're familiar, that's where Saul was supposed to be. The raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to the road of Ophrah, the land of Shual. Ophrah, by the way, you're familiar with probably, is the name of Naomi's other daughter-in-law that left when Ruth came. Which, by the way, interesting, she'll actually be the great-grandmother of David. Uh, another company turned to Bethchoran. Bethchoran, by the way, Beth means house, so it's house of, of hollowness or emptiness. It's, in essence, the mountains of Ephraim. It's where Joshua defeated the five kings of the south in Joshua 10. And then the third place, it says, And another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness, which means speckled. It's the place, by the way, that was destroyed. It was part of the place destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah in Deuteronomy. We see reviewed 29. Last verses. There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make sword or spears, but the Philistines would go down to the. I'm sorry, but the Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen each man's plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim. You're probably not familiar with a pim, I would imagine. Pim is not just the drink that people get that yuppies get somewhere after work on the east side. It's in essence, by the way, and we can show you a couple pictures. This is actually a pim. Uh, well, this isn't yet. But you're going to see one here, I think. Uh, and it looks like this. I'm running out of air. What's well, going to look like it in a moment? Let me just tell you what it is as we go for it. It's basically two-thirds of a Hebrew shekel. So in essence, what that makes it is about 7.6 grams. If the common currency of the day was silver, what that meant was for you to basically get anything sharpened or for you to get anything set would cost you roughly three pounds 34. That's basically what that pim would cost you. And it says that it came about in the day of battle, and here's the point of it all. Uh, they charged a pim for plowshares, mattocks, forks, axes to set the points on a goad. It came about in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. They were only found with Saul and Jonathan his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This ends, by the way, if you think about it, with Saul and 600 guys that don't have weapons against an innumerable army, of course, which we looked at, which includes, by the way, a whole lot of tanks. And you've got a fork. You've got a stick. That's what you got. 
And it's amazing because this is what he said back before this. Back, by the way, in chapter 12, as we close this, he says, what you did by asking for a king was wrong. He said in verse 15, however, if you obey the voice of the Lord and not rebel against the commandment, then the hands of, it says, if you do rebel against the, of the commandment of the Lord, his hand will be against you as it was against your fathers. Now see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Isn't today the wheat harvest? Wheat harvest puts it, by the way, in May, June, basically right where we're at right now or a little earlier. And he says, I call on the Lord and he'll send thunder and rain. Now I need to tell you, the Mediterranean is very different from here. Rain here is no miracle. Rain here is a normal thing. Imagine if he stood before us right now. I said, I'll tell you, we'll do a really strange thing. Instantly, it'll become super sunny for five days straight. We would probably think of that as a miracle. There, it would be the same only with thunder and lightning. I want you to perceive the great wickedness which was done in the sight of the Lord by asking for this king when God was your king. Samuel called to the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. Imagine God responding in such a way. And all the people feared the Lord. And here's the last thing he said. And it takes us to our end of our text on that. All the people said, please pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we wouldn't die. For we have added to all of our sins of evil, the evil of asking for a king for ourselves. Samuel says, listen, don't fear. You've done this wickedness, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside. Then you go after empty things which can't profit or deliver you at all. And they're actually nothing because the Lord won't forsake his people. And he says this. Hear me. If you obey, your king will obey. That's what he's saying. And that's the craziest part about this. Is that he's saying, don't be afraid. If you guys are willing to obey, you'll have a good king. If you guys are willing to be lunatics, and he's talking about, this is God's people. This isn't the secular world around them. This is God's people. It's like, if you, as God's people, are willing to turn your hearts and really obey, I'll give you a good ruler, because all rulers are, are appointed by God. That's what Hebrews, I'm sorry, what Romans tells us. He goes, but if you guys want to go and be anarchic, and be, and be you know, completely against God's law, antinomial, well, then expect your king to be too. Though the politics is what it is, understand it isn't just because the world around us is unsaved. We expect that. It's because the church isn't willing to be obedient to Christ. And if we are willing to be obedient, we're going to find us to be a lot more influential. And the, the politicians around us are going to be very, very different. And as we go to prayer, please understand we are, we are left at a crazy spot. Because we are left at a spot where the people are recognized that asking for a worldly king when God was their king was a stupid move. But he says, well, the king's in place now. But you, even though the king seems to lead you, you lead the king in obedience. And if God's people are really willing to put themselves under the real king, then this king can be just like God's history, where he sends a person to deliver his people. But for that, you don't cry out to the king, you cry to the Lord. There's the point. And okay, we're completely the underdogs here. We have no weapons, and they have an innumerable army. They have 3,000 chariots. That's their tanks. And we start to look at all of this, and the horsemen, if we keep our eyes on the enemy and the opposition, we'll faint. But if we cry out to the Lord like we should, He always delivers. He is always a deliverer. 
But as we go to prayer, let me ask you something. What are you really after? Because God's going to raise up one kid that's going to kill his tens of thousands. One guy that they're going to ascribe tens of thousands taken down by. That's David. Who by this point, by the way, hasn't even hit puberty. And if he has, he's just barely. Why not you? And my prayer today as we go now to prayer is that the Lord would purify our hearts in a way that what we'd really want, what we'd really desire, is his heart. That we would take the things that are precious to God and make them precious to us. Well, well, let me ask you, what are the things that are precious to God? Look around. I see them. I see the things that are precious to God. God sent Jesus, the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross, not for anything but people. Nothing else was the jewel in the field but you. And beloved, please hear me. If I were to take what is important to God and make important to me, then I'd make you important to me. To serve you and bring you closer any way I could to him. But also take the things that he hates and hate them. Which would certainly be anything that pulls you or me away from him. Those are the things I need to declare a war on. Not you. Not people out there spouting nonsense. But the sin that so pervades our culture that the church has been silent about and sad to say even has been partaker in. Please let that not be us. Will you pray with me? God, I just want to thank you for this amazing text. And in the middle of all of the things, Lord, that you have led us through here, you've put us in this place, Lord, where we have to consider what we're really after. And and really, in the end of it all, Jesus, are you the end of my pursuit or are you the means to it? Do I want to hook up with you so I can get stuff? Or do I want you to be the thing I really want? And for every adulterous part of my heart, every wandering part that really should be completely craving you, conquer it now, please. Is Jesus, you gave everything to have me. There was no wandering There was no diffusing of focus. Everything about you was to redeem everything about me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross to pay for all my sins. And thank you, Jesus, for raising from the dead so that I could have a brand new life. And I pray now, God, that you put that spirit of Jonathan in me in that sense and in us where though the world could be latent and the the church can be latent and sitting around and protecting itself and not on the advance, there was one person who was tired of it and was going to go after the garrison. Give that, put that upon me, God. Put that upon us, that desire to go out and take the ground that you promised, Lord, that you would give us and that you told us even the gates of hell themselves couldn't prevail. Oh, God, put that upon us. But as you put that upon us, let our hearts be first and foremost those that crave your heart. And then in that, take what is important and make important to us, which including the people that we want to see rescued.
So tonight, transform us, I pray. Make us people that are on fire for you and crave you like we should. In Jesus' name, amen.